a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. A special shout out to those who are tuning in for the very first time. If you want to check this program out, see what it's all about. See if the rumors you've heard are true. This is where we gather to revel in wrong think. You're going to find out that's absolutely true. But uh, if you have any inkling of a love for freedom in your heart, you're going to recognize that's necessary today. Reality itself is under attack from so many different angles. And there's, look, there is no unbiased source out there, including me. So my goal here isn't so much to persuade you that I've got all the answers. I don't. But I am here to persuade you that it's in our best interest, you and I, individually, to think as clearly and independently as we possibly can. That means you've got to be willing to question everything. And that can be sometimes a little bit difficult, a little uncomfortable. Well, I'm here to uh, here to make that journey along with you. I'll try to be a good traveling companion, and and I have some really good stuff to share with you today. In fact, we're gonna we're gonna start on a very positive note. But first, let me thanks thank my sponsors rather, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic, or DixieChiro.com. One thing that I'm very grateful for are the people that I look around and see who are, by example, demonstrating what it means to be a person of conviction and integrity. You know, if if you follow primarily just, you know, whatever is dominating the news cycle, you're not going to see a lot of that. What you're going to see is pretty much the worst of, of what humanity has to offer. You're going to see everything presented from the standpoint of, well, the political class cares about this. Therefore, this is the most important thing in the world today. But truth be told, it probably is. It's important to them because if they can get you to buy in that, well, this really matters and get you to spend your time and your mental energy just focusing on that, then you're pretty much, you know, serving their purposes. Otherwise, there's a lot of the world... That, that matters, that falls outside of whatever's going on in the D.C. Beltway or even in your own state or local politics. And once you've developed a taste for seeing everything through that political prism, through that uh, mainstream media prism that makes everything, every interaction political, it can be pretty hard to break that habit. So I'm going to give you some encouragement today to to consider snapping out of the spell, unplugging from the Matrix, and just <clears throat> testing to see if the world doesn't start to look a little bit more normal. Now, I understand there are a lot of different competing voices out there. And I mean a lot. And, and I know one of the biggest challenges that we face is knowing, well, but which ones can I trust? I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't hear from someone asking me, hey, who do you trust on this issue? Or what sources do you think are credible <clears throat> regarding, you know, this particular topic? And, you know, there are some sources that I have come to, to, to feel like they're, they're fairly reliable. I don't think they're infallible. But I think they do a better than average job of presenting the information. And here's the important part, leaving it up to me to make up my mind what it all means. In other words, they're not trying to either emotionally or psychologically steer me into some preconceived conclusion. 
I wish I could say the same about much of the mainstream media, but it seems like that's that's the role they've taken on, and they're gonna they're gonna hang on to it to the bitter end. Now, I have noticed over the years that the people whose opinions carry legitimate weight, the ones that I'm willing to sit back and say, okay, wait, tell me more, because I think that they have credibility, are the people who prize doing the right thing over their personal comfort. In other words, if they are willing to do hard things and they're willing to suffer for their beliefs, I'm going to at least give them a fair hearing and and try to see if what they have to say makes sense. The people who just sit there and, you know, emote or speak, you know, from their committee position chairs, Miss Cheney, I'm looking your way, you know, without ever having any skin in the game or no consequences for for what they're saying. Yeah, that, it's just talk and talk is cheap. Let me give you an example of what this looks like, though. Someone who is willing to step up and do something very, very difficult. I've been following Stacy Rudin, I don't know, for a couple of years now on Twitter She's an excellent writer. She is somebody who is uh, a person of conviction, and I found her one of the better sources of finding out uh, what's what in terms of all the COVID information swirling around out there. Stacy has been, you know, very principled in her approach, and she's been very principled, particularly at pushing back against a lot of the COVID reaction or overreaction. There's a title, there's a, uh, an article here on her, uh, her substack called I Can't Believe It's Come to This. That's the title of it. Subtitle, People Here Will Never Stop Doing COVID. So she says, I'm officially out. Later, safety cult. Enjoy your communist future. Here's what she's talking about. She says, I have less than two weeks left in my house. My dream house, I might add, where I hoped to live when I retired. And I am angry. COVID is everywhere. I know multiple people who have it right now. How is this different from March 2020? She says, COVID is still everywhere. We can all still get it. This means, conclusively means, that all of our countermeasures did nothing, not one single thing other than cause grievous harm. Now, she says, this morning I had my last tennis lesson with a pro that I'm close to. I nearly cried. She also coaches my daughter. She will find new clients, but this affects her also. My friends who play weekly doubles with me will need to find another player for their foursome. There are two other coaches I hit with every week who now have open lesson time slots. My nine-year-old is sleeping over at her best friend's on Thursday, the day before the last day of school. The friend cries and cries about my daughter's departure. She says, we've never lived in Texas. In fact, I've never even been to Texas when we finally decided to bail out of New Jersey during Omicron. But before that... She says, I don't think my husband thought I was serious about moving, but my intuition had been telling me for months, many of them, that this wasn't the place for me. I feel betrayed. And she says, people know, they have to know that COVID makes no sense by now. They've all had it. The symptoms are not new nor unique in any way. These are illnesses we all dealt with for all of our lives. So did our parents and grandparents. There was never a time when people did not get coughs, body aches, fevers, and sniffles. The only thing new since 2020 is that now people run out and get a test when these symptoms arise. The test tells them their symptoms have a name, and they announce this to everyone they know. There's literally no end point to this. People will have to stop testing, or COVID will go on forever. And she says, that's why I'm moving to a place where people don't do COVID. 
Strangely enough, they're still surviving just fine. The blue state COVID cult pretends this isn't happening, which makes them look less than brainless. If MSNBC was correct, everyone in Florida and Texas and all of Africa would be dead now. Well, since they're not, perhaps you should just start uh, doing what they do. In other words, letting this crap go. And she says, don't bother saying that to any of them. They'll just freeze you out. None of them will debate. They can't. They sidestep the, the subject and refuse to engage, which is the heart of the betrayal. And she says, they're hurting me and my family. I'd like to explain to them why and how. And they smile at me and change the subject. Sometimes they drop a little aside about their latest booster shot. What? You really think Pfizer is holding back the floodgates of mass death? Have you not heard that no one is getting the booster? You are aware that I haven't had any of those injections, and unlike you, I haven't even had COVID. Stacy Rudin says these people are acting as if there was a magical day in March 2020 beyond, which it would never be safe to ignore common respiratory symptoms again. That all would be well and good except for the fact that it's causing harm, massive harm, once it is acknowledged. She says we need to ask why the government's doing what it's doing. I believe this is the point where they get stuck. They can't even allow themselves to consider that their political party, which they see as a friend and ally, even better than most of their in-person friends and allies like me, could do something this heinous. Their mind shuts down. They don't want to rebuild their entire worldview and existence, which is what would result if they followed this inquiry to its logical end. Stacey Rudin says all of the worst events in history have been committed by governments, all of them. The most powerful entities can make major moves towards maximizing their own interests, moves that the rest of us cannot even imagine making. And they do, and they will. Think of the major historical catastrophes and then ask yourself what good reason you have to believe that those in power today are all good and honest. Don't you think the regular people back then thought the same of their governments? Do you think they were openly on board with the gulags and the death fields and the gas chambers? Yet those things managed to happen under their watch. She says the government today is telling people that half this country, anyone who disagrees with COVID measures, is really a sadistic killer who hates grandma. Would it be logical to believe that perfectly successful people, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, are really totally cold-blooded sadists? No, they're just like you. They want the same things as you. Is it, it is useful to someone somewhere to get you to believe these illogical things and fight with your neighbor who should be your ally. You should be asking who that someone actually is. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Yes, they are located in St. George, Utah, but if you are hearing this message anywhere within the state of Utah or Idaho, Heather and her team can help you get the mortgage you need, and most importantly, get it in a timely fashion. You can reach out and call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, her office is at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article by Stacy Rudin from her Substack account. I can't believe it's come to this. 
And what it amounts to is she is moving her family. I believe, I thought she lived in New York City. It could be she lives in New Jersey, but she lives, she has lived on the East Coast. She is actually moving her family to Texas. And the biggest reason that she is uprooting her family, leaving her dream home, which she had dreamed of retiring in, and going somewhere else, is because she refuses to live among the COVID safety cult. And, of course, if you've been following the news, New York City is still very much, you know, playing out, wear your masks and, you know, be very afraid, be very afraid of this. And one of the things she points out here is someone is trying to convince people that half this country, mainly the, the people who are in disagreement with these severe COVID measures, half the country are nothing more than sadistic killers who hate grandma. I think most of us who've been on the side of freedom have experienced this at one point or another. And Stacey Rudin says you need to be asking who these people are that are pushing this narrative. She says, why are you putting yourself in a position where you're doing things, taking actions, where you refuse to discuss with people who disagree with them? Why can't you defend what you're doing? And if you can't, then why are you doing it? This is a question for the members of the safety cult. The people whose directives you're following talk a lot about pseudoscience, but they're always accusing those of us who disagree with their directives of pushing it. But you know what pseudoscience really is? It's putting forth a premise that cannot be disproven. For example, my COVID would have been worse without my vaccine. More grandmas would have died if we wouldn't have locked down, worn masks, and taken vaccines. Now she says these two assertions can actually be easily refuted. Look at the nations that didn't lock down and the health of the unvaccinated. But you won't hear the evidence from the people pushing pseudoscience. And that sets up a situation where you're right just by saying you're right. And the people who know you're wrong have to leave. She says it's it's too aggravating after two and a half years of enduring this nonsense to stay. When Omicron arrived, the news said it was like a cold. No one would die, yet you put the masks back on. Why? Why would you want to slow down a cold? Wouldn't it be better for everyone to just get it at one time and then everyone forgets about it? Why are you running out for tests? Do you actually like quarantining? What are you doing? Your spouse had COVID and you didn't even catch it before there were any vaccines. So why did you run out and get three vaccines? Why? How many vaccines are too many? Will you be fine if my preschooler is forced to take this pointless vaccine that I strongly disagree with? Thanks to your actions, the actions you can't even explain? I don't even think you understand what you're doing, but you have an ethical duty to examine your actions, especially once you can see they're impacting someone else. If a ship captain knows his vessel is old and hardly seaworthy, but takes a gamble on one last voyage with your children on board, is that perfectly cool with you? Did he fulfill his basic responsibility to examine his actions, or did he fall short? Now, Stacey Rudin says, I know it's, it's painful and troubling to admit that our entire COVID response was a waste of, an eff- of effort and that it caused the most damage of any public policy ever openly enacted in history. She says, I know it's disturbing to consider the fact that your political team went on board with this. Then you have to wonder whether you're really the smart ones. You have to wonder whether you owe some sort of reparations to the people who were harmed by your actions. You have to wonder where we go from here when the people you trusted were either totally inept or pure evil. She says this is all very hard, 
but it's what needs to be done. They sold you on lockdown by telling you a one-city lockdown in China eradicated the disease from the entire country. That was absurd. You were scared, and so you bought it. Now here we are two years later, and your kids are still hearing about COVID. Your life is continually disrupted. Travel is more difficult. Communities are more divided. And people like me are accusing you of causing harm. You hurt people, and you first need to acknowledge that fact. And then examine how this occurred, and search your soul for the reasons you're okay with this. Now she says, I submit that you're living life in a way that's most expedient for you, doing things that work best for you, that lead to the maximum moment-to-moment comfort and advantages for you. And that is the opposite of what you should be doing. You should be searching for what is right, and then doing it no matter how hard it is. Now that last cup, that last paragraph actually really hit me right between the eyes because it's not just the people who are pushing the, you know, COVID mitigation narrative. This could actually apply to all of us in our personal lives. I know it hit me and it caused me to stop and think, okay, what about the times when I've been doing what's most expedient? What works best for me? What's giving me the most comfort? Or at least is the, the, uh, the, the way of the least effort. I used to joke around with Tim, one of my coworkers. That was, that was one of our, our favorite sayings, you know, when there was a task to be done at the radio station, you know, hey, uh, what do you want me to do about this? Should I do it this way? Should I do it that way? If there was ever a question, the answer was ease dictates. <laughs> we would laugh about it. But unfortunately, that's the motto that a lot of people have applied to their lives. That's why they don't want to stand for anything. And I'll grant you, there are risks. Look, people who refused to take the mandated jab, there were people who actually, you know, very literally lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods because they refused to give in to an unwanted medical procedure. You think that's comfortable? I mean, if you've been in that situation, you know, I, I, you, could, you could probably answer that for yourself. And it brings us to this age-old question, which I, I maintain, I, I have to give credit to my friend Dr. Shannon Brooks for pointing this out to me, but into every person's life, at some point, comes this moment of decision. And you don't always get to choose when that moment comes. But when it comes, you're going to find yourself at a crossroads. And that crossroad appears at the moment that you realize that the direction society or at least the the masses or the majority are going is not a direction that's compatible with what your conscience is telling you is right. And then you have to choose. And your choices roughly come down to this. I can uh, go along with what the crowd is doing just because, hey, that way I avoid, you know, drawing any attention to myself and standing out. You know, I don't want to be the nail that's sticking up and gets hammered. So I can go along, and I can either go along wholeheartedly, or I can go along, well, just do the minimum, but, you know, I'm running with the herd, and therefore I'm not drawing attention to myself. You have the choice of, well, I'll just lay low. Okay, I'll just kind of hang back here in one of the more crowded corners where it's hard to pick me out from anybody else, but I won't draw attention to myself, but I'm not going to actively stand up against this kind of thing. And then there's another choice. Maybe you have to stand up. And, and, and take that lonely stance that pits you against so-called polite society. 
And the crazy thing about it is polite society is trained to view any kind of dissent like this as a threat. And, and people will say, it's my duty to ostracize you, to punish you, to make you feel bad, to try to drag you back into the safety of the herd. But what you and I have to be able to answer is what would it take? At what point would I be willing to step away from things that I really cherish, like my job, like my association, like my membership in the country club or whatever it may be? Where would I part company with so-called polite society because my conscience says you can't go along with what's being done here? If you haven't asked yourself that question, you might want to get on that. I promise you, that moment arrives for every single one of us, and you need to be prepared. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back. Our show is brought to you in part by LifesavingFood.com. There's a link that you'll find in my show notes. It's under the section titled Sponsors. Click on that link. It'll take you right to their website, and you can make whatever decisions you want to make from there. You'll find not just food storage, but a lot of emergency preparedness things, things that'll help you uh, you know, cook with solar power or filter your water or any number of other things, light sources for when you know the power grid isn't working, just stuff to have on hand for unexpected or even expected emergencies. That's lifesavingfood.com. You know, one of the biggest voids right now in Western civilization is this profound lack of moral education. Paul Rosenberg actually had an excellent article that was published earlier this week, making the case for the necessity of family rituals. And I'm talking about the kind of rituals that teach children to grow up strong and good. Here's how he puts it. Paul Rosenberg says, there's a gaping void in the modern West, and that is a profound lack of moral education. Now, this void was created when church attendance was ripped out of culture and then replaced with nothing at all. And he says, this is a dangerous void. A civilization cannot continue without a moral core. For better or for worse, and there was plenty of both, church attendance is what kept the people of the West in touch with moral concerns, and it did so for more than a thousand years. Now, he says this gap needs to be filled, and the family is the best choice for doing so. Even for families that still go to church, he says, I'm convinced that family rituals are necessary. And the reason is simple. Children must be intimately familiar with the deepest of moral issues and must be able to express themselves about them. Now, the first thoughts formed by children, of course, are going to be childish. Nonetheless, they need to speak those thoughts and have them corrected, improved, without being shamed. And the right setting for this is in the comfort of their home, in the presence of their loving parents. So if you want your children to grow up strong and good, then he says, I can't think of a better model for you to follow. So how exactly can that be done? Well, Paul Rosenberg says this can be done in infinite ways, but the essential components are these. This must be done regularly, and once per week is probably the best and most practical model. Number two, this must be time set apart. Somehow you need to separate this time from normal time. These moments need to be different. Number three, the clamor of the everyday work, current affairs, gossip, and so on must remain outside. 
you must discuss things of enduring importance. The children must see actual, careful reasoning. They must become familiar with analysis and expression. The children must voice their concerns. The adults must keep them safe and help them clarify their ideas very, very gently. I'm sorry, that sounds like family home evening to me, but that's, you know, that's the culture I grew up in. But that sounds exactly like what he's describing here. And Paul Rosenberg says, creating such a ritual isn't particularly hard, except for the first few times that you do it. After that, it takes on a life of its own, and it will make your children into better people. And it makes parents into better people as well. Now, one of the examples he gives here, he says, the oldest and best family ritual I know is the Jewish Sabbath dinner called Shabbos or Shabbat. It's been practiced well over 2,000 years running. It's even one of the Ten Commandments. So he says, I'll describe Shabbos dinner here briefly, and I'd like you to keep in mind that after two or 3,000 years of actual use, the model has been pretty well honed. So adapt as you see fit, but keep the model in mind. You don't have to convert to Judaism. Just adopt what's useful. Shabbos is a family event held at the dinner table every Friday night, and it's a time apart from normal time. Jewish families prepare for Shabbos during the week, have all the necessities in place by midday Friday, and then shut everything else down and make Shabbos. Once everything is set, everyone sits, and the mother, not the father except in necessity, performs the opening ritual and prayer. Further prayers follow, but the point of it all, and this is the part that you need to retain, is that everyone understands on a visceral level that this is time set apart. At Shabbos dinner, important things are discussed. The conversation is typically started by reading a passage of Scripture, but anything that transcends the mundane can work. Even the children are expected to express some independent thought about the topic being discussed. They're helped along only as much as is necessary. The parents and grandparents make sure that everyone feels safe expressing their thoughts. No ridicule is permitted, etc. It's typical for the family making Shabbos to invite friends, relatives, and neighbors, including the friends of children. So what are the effects? Well, he says Shabbos and regular rituals like them are powerful. Children are trained not only to think, listen, and express themselves, but that the hustle of daily life is interruptible and should be interrupted. Now, the people partaking in the ritual also form strong bonds with one another. It's, after all, far more intimate to express one's opinions on spirituality and morality than it is on whatever trivialities or outrages are running across the Internet. Like I say, I'm, I'm looking at this from the, from the standpoint of someone who was raised in an LDS home, and what he's describing here clearly parallels what we would call family home evening in my home. And it was just that once a week time that was set aside specifically for family. And look, we pushed back against this as kids. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, and everybody just lined up and we gathered around dad's uh, easy chair and sat there at his knee as he dispensed fatherly advice with his perfectly brill creamed hair. You know, no, it was just a time, though, that was set apart strictly for family. And that was when we discussed the things that matter. In other words, we weren't concerned with whether Justin Bieber's face was half paralyzed or not. That may be interesting, but in the grand scheme of things, it really doesn't matter, at least not to what we stand for as a family and where we hope to be as individuals who are growing and learning as we make our way through life. So I've got, an, I've got a link to this article in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com 
Again, Paul Rosenberg on the necessity of family rituals. And I think this is something worth considering, especially if you find yourself feeling overwhelmed and if you find yourself just bowed down under the weight of all the challenges and all of the anger and and hatred that's growing out there in the world. Family is the best and first refuge you should be seeking in the kind of storm that we're going through right now. This is not to suggest family's perfect. I mean, there's there's some pretty, you know, heavy-duty dysfunction that happens within families. But it's also the first line of defense against a world that's trying to beat you into submission. And if you know that your family has your back, there's very little that a person can't face knowing that they have that kind of backing. If you've ever been through a really difficult grind and and knew that you had family that loved you no matter what, and that they were standing with you and there to help you, it's bearable. It's something you can handle. Now, I'm going to segue here into another commentary from uh, Paul Rosenberg, and this is a defense of young men. Since we hear so much talk about toxic masculinity and we need to make these young men become, you know, uh, I don't know, more, more ladylike, as if there's, there was a difference, right? <laughs> there's no difference. There's no such thing as men or women. Good gravy. You realize back in 1977, Billy Joel had a huge hit song called Always a Woman to Me? He's not even a biologist. How would he know? All right, sarcasm off. A defense of young men. Paul Rosenberg says young men get a bad rap not only in modern narratives but in assumptions that portray them as the aberrant sex rather than the normative one. Now his point is neither sex is normative, of course. Humans come in two basic varieties and both are equally necessary. But he says my personal experience with young men ran counter to the narratives and assumptions. And he says I think it's time that the boys of the West should be defended. Most of them are good kids and they deserve to be seen that way and to be portrayed that way. Paul Rosenberg says puberty and the surrounding years that are are inherently the craziest of human moments. That's when floods of hormones hit us, spawning all sorts of instincts and drives. If you want to see humans acting as hybrid primates, look at them during this passage. But he says, even as I passed through those confused times with my friends, I saw young men behaving fairly well. Now, the young men were clumsy, of course, as they tried to warm up to girls, but The girls were a little nuts, too, as they encountered their own floods of hormones. We were all confused, driven, and erratic. But so it goes in human lives. Adolescents have always been that way. And he says, all that said, I saw some abuse as we grew up, and I learned how to subdue our our craziness, but not a tremendous amount. And one significant case of abuse that he witnessed involved a girl trying to make a boy abuse another girl. He says, I hardly knew what to make of that, save that I found it horrific. There was another nasty incident in our neighborhood, though, that I didn't see. Everyone was upset about it, and thankfully that was a a one-off. But his point is, most of the young men in his world behaved fairly well. And he says, I was by no means living in a tiny corner. My high school class consisted of more than 400 kids, and I knew most of them. And I had friends in other places as well. So we'll tap the brakes here because we got to take a quick commercial timeout. When we come back, I'm going to share with you five examples that Paul Rosenberg gives of young men who lived up to that standard of excellence that we should be encouraging in all young men. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Just like that, we are back. Just want to give a quick shout-out to HSLAmmo.com. You'll find a link to their website in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It'd make me very happy if you'd click on that link, do a little bit of shopping, and do some business with HSLAmmo.com. So back to Paul Rosenberg's essay about uh, in a defense of young men. I know that uh, we are sometimes told that, well, these young men, they're nothing but, uh, you know, ne'er-do-wells. They're, they're running crazy. They're doing, you know, crime in the streets, and they're just, you know, you know drug-addled, hormone-addled troublemakers. But here are five examples, five stories from his adolescence of young men behaving well. And, and when, when I share these with you, I want you to understand he's, he's pointing out these examples just to illustrate that you could find similar examples in your own sphere of influence, but you have to look for them. So he says, these are things that I personally experienced. This was the world that I knew. He says, I was once at a party with my good friend, John. Our host informed us that one of the girls had had too much to drink and was lying half conscious in a spare bedroom. We stood guard in front of the door for a couple of hours and felt righteous about it. Justifiably, I think. I mean, if if your son did something similar, if your son made sure that nobody went in to take advantage of this girl who was passed out, I would think that uh, you would, would be more proud than not, right? Okay, maybe you have beef with him being at a party in the first place, but still. That, that was a stand-up move. Paul Rosenberg says, One of my friends, a girl, once confided in me that an old man had groped her. I volunteered that John and I could beat him up so he wouldn't think of doing it again. He says, I figured two teenagers could handle one old guy. Now, he says, She thanked me and declined, but I kept my eyes open for that guy, and I have no doubt that John would have joined me. Okay, third example. We had a young man in our neighborhood we called Crazy Joe. Now, he called himself Crazy Joe, too, so don't, uh, don't get your dander up here. Joe was developmentally disabled in today's vocabulary, and everyone in the neighborhood looked after him. Now, this is what's interesting. He says, I never heard of anyone taking advantage of Joe. He was, in fact, routinely invited to parties and so on. When we saw Joe on the street, we'd see if he needed help with anything. I'm pretty sure the girls helped Joe, too, but he says, from my vantage point, it was boys, young men, reaching out, helping, and being ready to defend a retarded kid, as they were called then. Number four, George was a young man who intervened when a group of us were foolishly talking about another boy. George explained to us the background of the situation and why what we were doing was hurtful. And not only did we all stop immediately, but we thanked George for explaining things to us. Talk about where just one person can make a difference, right? And finally, Eric was a kid who moved into the neighborhood from somewhere else. He was an excellent athlete, so he got some immediate respect from us, sports-crazed as we were. But Eric soon went out of his way to be kind to the boys who weren't very good athletes. He gave advice and never ridiculed, as some of the other boys did. And Paul Rosenberg says, decades later, I still carry respect for him, and I doubt that I'm alone. Now, he says, other people had different experiences, I have no doubt. But my experiences were real, and some jackass somewhere else doesn't negate them. More than that, the good things I experienced get more or less zero play on the platforms people plug into. And that's a major slight. There are good young men in the world, and there always have been. They deserve equal time, and they don't get it. 
I think we should start talking about that. And he says, the boys deserve it. I can tell you as a dad, there are no sweeter words to my ears than someone who has either met with or interacted with um, my boys, actually any of my kids, but, but especially my boys, who come to me and say, that is a fine young man. Or your, your son is uh, you know, a great example of, of a good kid. They're not perfect, okay? None of us were. But it makes me feel like, despite all the mistakes I've made as a parent, there were some things that went right. And, and truth be told, I should probably give most of the credit to their mother. I think she did most of the heavy lifting. But I agree with Paul Rosenberg. You know, you find what you're looking for. Maybe these are the kind of things we should be looking for. So, since we're on the subject of adjusting our, our uh, outlook... I wanted to share with you Barry Brownstein's latest essay. This was, to me, this thing was as welcome as a life preserver being tossed to a man uh, who's trying to stay afloat in deep water. Barry's advice is don't get with the program. This is the case against mowing wildflowers. He says, if you viewed our yard and meadow from a distance or in the early morning before the flowers rise to meet the sun, you might be puzzled why some patches haven't been mowed. And he has a quote here from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Many eyes go through the meadow, but few See the flowers in it. So Barry Brownstein says, as you get closer, you're going to see a pattern. I don't mow the patches of wildflowers that emerge each spring and summer. By late, flow- by late June, rather, the flowers have gone to seed or faded away, and I cut the meadow grasses before they're too tall for the mower to handle. Here's another quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. All over the wide fields of earth grows the prunella or self-heal. After every foolish day, we sleep off the fumes and furies of its hours, and though we are always engaged with particulars, and often enslaved to them, we bring with us every experiment, we bring with us to every experiment the innate universal laws. These, while they exist in the mind as ideas, stand around us in nature forever embodied, a present sanity to expose and cure the insanity of men. End quote. Now, he includes some pictures here in the essay. Uh, Barry Brownstein says, My wife's favorites are the colonies of bluettes. My favorites are the hawkweeds. Some say hawkweed is an invasive species, but it's never crowded out the other species in our meadow. Others tout hawkweed's medicinal properties. And again, a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. What is a weed? A plant whose virtues have not yet been discovered. Barry Brownstein says, Protecting the wildflowers helps me be more mindful. Sitting in my riding mower, I can't zone out. I have to be alert for the wildflower colonies. Yet another quote from Emerson. Every moment instructs and every object for wisdom is infused into every form. Barry Brownstein says, Living in a rural area, I notice more the rhythm of nature. In January, I begin to notice the more direct rays of the sun. By August, the first hints of fall are seen in the forest. Unencumbered by city lights, the cycles of the moon are visible out my window. On the nights of a full moon, so bright is the light, you can almost take a hike safely in the forest. Paying attention to the cycles of wildflowers adds another dimension of awareness. He says, immersed in nature, there's no escaping the fact that we control very little in life. In the city, many think otherwise, as they're in training to be masters of the universe. Here's a quote from David K. Reynolds. Anyone who has spent years working in a garden or in the fields knows impermanence intimately. We see the cycle of seasons, the coming and going of insects, droughts, freezes, rot, the seeds that sprout or die, the life cycles of plants, the bountiful harvest and the lean. It is all change. 
there's nothing that can be counted on with certainty to be exactly as it was last year. So Barry Brownstein says, when you don't mow your wildflowers, you're not getting with the program of cookie-cutter manicured yards. Too many people have gotten with the program in healthcare, with education, with diet, with fear of speaking out. And the results have been catastrophic both for themselves and society. Again, a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. At the gates of the forest, the surprised man of the world is forced to leave his city estimates of great and small, wise and foolish. Barry Brownstein says, don't mow the wildflowers. Grow a garden. Homeschool or supplement your child's education. Cancel cable and read a book. Since the basis of any good diet from keto to Mediterranean to vegan begins with whole foods, take the time to cook with whole foods. This summer, enjoy the vegetable and fruit bounty of your local farmers. He says, reflect on your purpose. Be skeptical of experts. Your feelings lie. They can enslave you. Oppose bureaucrats ruling via unconstitutional administrative power. The world needs your voice. Don't censor yourself. Turn off your autopilot. Don't get with the program. And here's one final quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. The power which resides in him is new in nature. And none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. We but half express ourselves and are ashamed of that divine idea which each of us represents. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. When good is near you, you have life in yourself. It is not by any known or accustomed way. Nothing can bring you peace but the triumph of principles. There's a lot of wisdom to unpack there, and unfortunately we don't have time to do it in what remains of this segment of the show. But this is an essay that I would really encourage you to take a look at and and take some time to digest and maybe go back and read it over a couple of times. I thoughtfully linked to it in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. I really enjoy Barry Brownstein's writing. I think he has wonderful insights. I just, I think he approaches things from a a very palatable angle. Maybe he's just uh, he's just dialed into the same frequency here, but this one hit me especially hard. If you're struggling to deal with some of the challenges that are mounting in front of us, you should take his advice about not getting with the program. This is the Brian Hyde show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're one of those uh, fortunate individuals who has achieved some degree of clarity to the point that you are trying to make your escape from the mental prison being constructed around us, I want to help you with that effort. In fact, I would invite you to uh, pull up a chair and enjoy some time at one of the way stops on, I guess, an intellectual or or philosophical underground railroad that uh, is here to uh, help you gain your freedom from the... uh, philosophical slave catchers of our time. Oh, yeah, they're real, and they want to tell you what you can and cannot consider. I think that's a decision that only you are qualified to make. 
With that in mind, let's jump into the show here. i uh, got to mention some of my sponsors. In fact, I want to give a quick shout-out here to uh, Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can go to DixieChiro.com to get better acquainted with what Dixie Chiropractic has to offer. And this is primarily for my listeners in the southern Utah area. But, uh, wow, if you are dealing with car accident injuries or bulging herniated discs or if someone you know has neuropathy, DixieChiro.com may just bring you to some of the solutions that you're looking for. For instance, bulging herniated discs, check out the $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. Or for neuropathy, how about the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage? All the details are at DixieChiro.com. It would help me if you would mention that uh, you heard this on this program as you make your appointment with Dr. Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic. Well, there's still a lot of interest being uh, focused on, or at least there's a lot of attempted interest being focused on the January 6th uh, insurrection hearings. I still have a, a strong suspicion that this is just a distraction. I mean, it's if if the same kind of interest had been shown for, you know, the BLM riots of a couple of years ago, if there was that kind of exhaustive effort to to figure out who's behind it, who's making this happen, who said what, you know, why aren't there, you know, the the efforts to bring people to justice? Yeah, I might I might be more inclined to to give some credence to what's being said, but for the most part it just it's it's the political class trying to remind us that uh, hey, we're very important and we're very afraid when people disagree with us. So you better get on board and not disagree with us, or we're going to lump you in and 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 shut you down like we're trying to shut down everybody that uh, we perceive to be you know not with us. Got a great article here from Ned Crosby explaining the real question that the January sixth committee needs to be explaining, and and this is something I've touched on on this program before, and that is where is Ray or where is Ray Epps? Okay, this is kind of the modern version of where's Waldo. But Ray Epps, unlike Waldo, is not a fictional figure. He's a real guy, and he was right in the middle of a lot of the stuff that was happening both on January 6th and before January 6th. And yet the feds won't even acknowledge his role. They, he's, he's, no, we don't have any, we have no interest in him. Yeah, we talk to him. We'll release the transcript someday. Yeah, probably about the time the Pfizer documents are released. Okay, whatever. Here's what uh, Ned Crosby says. He says, since 1987, some of us have spent leisure time asking, where's Waldo? Looking for him in crowded cartoons clad in his red and white striped shirt. It passes the time and stimulates the mind. But since January 6, 2021, others have asked, where's Ray Epps? Asking where's Waldo is harmless enough, but asking where's Ray Epps? might get you the kind of attention no one wants in this post-9-11 emerging police state we still call America. Still, lots of questions are popping up about Ray Epps. On the surface, Ray Epps sounds like a salt-of-the-earth American. He and his wife Robin live in Arizona where they own two ranches. One of those farms is used as a wedding venue. Records indicate he's a retired Marine and 60 years old. If he were still with us, Norman Rockwell might be tempted to capture Robin and Ray on their front porch to embellish this updated picture of Americana. As the owner of two ranches, we get the suggestion that Ray has entrepreneurial blood pumping in his veins. Videos capturing Ray in Washington, D.C. on January 5th and 6th of 2021 show him as a mover and a shaker. In one video of Ray Epps taken on the evening of January 5th, 2021, 
Ray is seen wearing a red MAGA baseball cap and exhorting protesters to go into the Capitol. His words. During the span of January 5th through the 6th of 2021, Epps can be seen in several locations between the White House and the Capitol, urging people to enter the People's House. Like the imaginary Waldo, Ray Epps shows up doing his old man impression impersonation rather of Ethan Hunt on a Mission Impossible episode. Like the fictional Ethan Hunt, the agency, FBI and DOJ, has disavowed any knowledge or connection with Ray Epps. For some time, a picture of Epps appeared on an FBI website soliciting information about those who entered the Capitol on January 6th. That picture went up in a puff of smoke, and now the FBI refuses to answer questions about him. Nancy Pelosi and her minions are crafting their own narrative that they want to be accepted as truth, and she doesn't want her version annoyed by questions of deplorables. That heavy-handed behavior tends to raise red flags in the minds of truth-seekers. Why can't we see all the footage covering the January 6th event in the Capitol? Why is the renowned FBI sitting on what it knows about Rancher Ray? What a mysterious guy. He lives in Arizona, but makes himself famous herding Trumpers to the Capitol. As he was exhorting action, several people loudly suggested that Ray Epps is a Fed. Now he says, I know I'm expressing a quaint notion from America's past, but... Don't the people in the FBI and Department of Justice work for us, a.k.a. we the people? He says, I don't care about Waldo, but I want to know what brought Ray Epps to Washington from Arizona and who was paying him to stir things up. So says Ned Crosby. Now, I realize it's probably a lot easier to just dismiss questions like this as, well, you guys and your conspiracies, look at you chasing after some nonsensical conspiracy here. But if you have actually seen the videos of Ray Epps, and and there are plenty of them. By the way, if you're really looking for an in-depth investigation, and I mean like real investigative journalist and not just regime stenographer reports, you know, the the White House gave us this uh, press release and we're just going to repeat it for you like parrots. Go to revolver.news, just like it sounds, revolver.news, and you will find some of the most comprehensive not only reporting, but analysis of what was going on on January 6th. I'm not telling you that it's going to convince you once and for all this was just a big false flag event. But I think if you are, if you have enough intellectual honesty to actually look at the evidence that they provide, you would at least have to concede yeah, there are some legitimate questions that are not being answered by this January 6th committee. And once you realize that, it's okay to say, well, you know, why, why then is it that the, the narrative is being so strictly crafted and managed and steered in the predictable direction that, uh, well, everybody who is, uh, you know, part of MAGA USA is a domestic terrorist? Because that really seems to be the conclusion that this January 6th committee is trying to, to uh, steer us toward. They want to destroy the MAGA movement. And I understand not everybody is on board with that. Even even people who are, you know, pretty staunchly conservative and believe in limited government and think that, uh, you know, freedom is a good thing and the Constitution should be restricting government and limiting the exercise of its powers. Yeah, they're not all on board with Trump. And I'm not suggesting that uh, this is the point where you should start ending your prayers in the name of Donald Trump. 
but we're certainly not getting a complete picture of what took place on January 6th. I have no doubt there were some people who acted out, but I also see there's a lot of guilt by association. There's a lot of smearing people who were there in Washington, D.C., even if they weren't at the Capitol, and, you know, basically treating them as heretics. Well, you're questioning the the very foundation of our democracy, uh, which is our unassailable election process. I don't know about you, but I haven't trusted the election process since long before 2020. And basically all the gyrations that we see, you know, the political class going through right now to insist that you cannot question this. Well, you can't. I mean, what was it Liz Cheney did? I think it was yesterday. She talked about Dinesh D'Souza's 20 or uh, 10,000 mules uh, film. And she said, well, this has been thoroughly debunked. But she just left it at that. Okay, so what are we supposed to believe? It's been thoroughly debunked. Or is it 2,000 mules? Sorry, 2,000 mules has been debunked. So says Liz Cheney, but she never gives any evidence. She never qualifies. Who says it's debunked? How did they debunk it? Maybe she's just so important and so enlightened that we're just supposed to bow down at her feet and believe every word she speaks. Well... If she was a divine being rather than a politician, maybe that would be tempting, but she's a politician. And that trust thing, yeah, it's, it's just not working. So I'd like to see something a little more substantive, Ms. Cheney. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I sincerely hope you are finding content in the program that gives you a little bit stronger sense of who you are and what you stand for, more so than just makes you scared or makes you angry or, you know, gives you some kind of a command, sick them, you know, and go after this group or that person because, you know, this is the enemy. I have I have been through times in my life where enemy-driven thinking dominated my commentary. And, you know, I, I, I regret it from the standpoint of that was wasted time. It was also a good learning experience, and having gone through it, it's given me the ability to recognize when other people are engaging in it and to realize, okay, that's not something I want to embrace. And what I'm doing is encouraging you, if you find yourself becoming more focused on who or what you're against, it's time to stop, take a deep breath, step back, And ask yourself, why am I allowing myself to be more enemy-driven than to simply stand for what I believe in? Very healthy to do so. Sometimes it can be tough. There's some stuff that's going on right now that I I think uh, rightly provokes anger in the hearts of people who are paying attention. And yet, uh, not being consumed or otherwise uh, motivated by purely anger... You know, it's it's wise to rein it in. Our passions can be a good thing, but they can also be something that takes control of us. They can get out of control and lead us to places where we really don't want to go. Something that keeps coming back to me over and over is it's good to be aware, but not to the point of obsession. And I know sometimes that line can seem real blurry. But it starts with being aware that, you know what? I'm starting to get obsessive here, so I probably should step back 
and and take a take a deep breath and and recalibrate my moral compass just to keep me on course. You know, I hear a lot of people toss around the term fascism. In fact, usually it's being tossed around by people who are behaving as fascists, <laughs> very rigid and totalitarian in their thinking. There can be nothing outside of the way that we think. And ironically, they call themselves anti-fascist. But, you know, hey, yeah, I guess I guess we're not supposed to notice these kinds of things. And it's, it's clear that not many people understand what the term means. So when you put it into kind of a practical context, for instance, the emergence of neo-fascism in public health, then you can start to understand a little bit better what that word actually means. Got a great article here from David Bell. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. The emergence of neo-fascism in public health. Now, David Bell says, fascism is the art of hiding the truth behind a facade of wholesome virtue. And it is presumably as old as humanity. Mussolini just gave it a name, hiding his authoritarian ideas behind the drainage of swamps, village renewal, kids in schools, and train running, trains running on time. The 1930s picture of Nazism wasn't broken windows and old men being beaten in the street, but happy, smiling youth working together in the outdoors to rebuild the country. Now, putting such labels to the present time is dangerous, as they carry a lot of baggage. But it also helps to determine whether the current baggage we had thought was progressive is actually regressive. Those happy, smiling youth of the 1930s were actually being trained in the arts of self-righteousness, denigration of wrong think, and collective obedience. They knew they were right and that the other side was the problem. Is that familiar? The societal changes of the past two years have been defined by and led by public health. So it's right to look for public health analogies in the past to help understand what is happening, what the drivers are, and where they might lead. He says, we've witnessed our public health health professions and the associations that represent them call for active discrimination and coercion over medical choice. They've advocated for policies that impoverish others while maintaining their own salaries, controlling normal family life, and even dictating how they can mourn their dead. Does this bring back some bad memories from the last couple of years? Hospitals have refused transplants for those who made unrelated medical choices the hospital did not like. David Bell says, I've witnessed them refuse a family access to a dying loved one until they accept injections they do not want and then allow immediate access, thereby confirming it was not immunity but compliance that was sought. We've all seen prominent health professionals publicly vilify and denigrate colleagues who sought to restate principles on which we were all trained. Absence of coercion, informed consent, and non-discrimination. Rather than put people first, a professional colleague informed me in a discussion on evidence and ethics that the role of public health physicians was to implement instructions from the government. Collective obedience. And this has been justified by the greater good, an undefined term as no government pushing this narrative has in two years released clear cost-benefit data demonstrating that the good is greater than the harm. However, the actual tally, though important, isn't the point. The greater good has become a reason for the public health professions to annul the concept of the primacy of individual rights. They have decided that discrimination, stigma, and suppression of minorities is acceptable to protect a minority. This is what fascism was and is about. 
And those who have promoted slogans such as pandemic of the unvaccinated or no one is safe until all are safe know the intent and the potential outcomes of scapegoating minorities. Now, they also know from history that the fallacious nature of these statements does not impede their impact. Fascism is the enemy of truth, never its servant. David Bell says the point of writing this is to suggest that we call a spade a spade, that we state things as they are, that we tell the truth. Vaccines are a pharmaceutical product with varying benefits and risks, just like trees are wooden things with leaves on. People have rights over their own bodies, not doctors or governments in any society that considers all people of equal and intrinsic worth. Stigmatization, discrimination, and exclusion on the basis of health care choices, whether for HIV, cancer, or COVID-19, is wrong. Excluding and vilifying colleagues for differing views on the use of safe medications is arrogant. Denouncing those who refuse to follow orders conflicting with ethics and morals is dangerous. He says blindly following government and corporate dictates simply to comply with the group has nothing in common with ethical public health. These all have more in common with the fascist ideologies of the past century than with what was taught in the public health lectures that he attended. And he says, if that's the society we now wish to develop, we should be upfront and state this, not hide behind the facades of false virtue such as vaccine equity or all in this together. And he says, let's not get tied down with the political niceties of left and right. The leaders of Europe's two main fascist regime, regimes of the 1930s emerged from the left. They leaned heavily on public health concepts of greater good to weed out the inferior thinkers and non-compliers. David Bell says our current condition calls for introspection, not partisanship. As a profession, we've complied with directives to discriminate, stigmatize, and exclude, whilst blurring requirements for informed consent. We have helped remove basic human rights to bodily autonomy, education, work, family life, movement, and travel. We've followed the corporate authoritarians, ignoring their conflicts of interest and enriching them whilst our power has become poorer. Public health has failed to put the people in charge and has become a mouthpiece for a small, wealthy, and powerful minority. Now, he says, we can continue down this path, and it will probably end up where it did last time, except perhaps without the armies of others to overthrow the monstrosity we supported. Or we can find humility. Remember, public health should be a servant of the people and not the instrument of those who seek to control them and remove the monster from our midst. David Bell says, if we do not support fascism, we cease to be its instrument. We could achieve this simply by following the fundamental ethics and principles on which our professions are based. I believe this was published first on the Brownstone Institute website, which is a remarkable resource if you have any questions at all about the official COVID narrative. Truly some brilliant minds brought together there. Again, the link to this David Bell article can be found in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You know, if you're going to question the narrative, it's nice to have resources like this with which to uh, formulate some of those questions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a shout out to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. 
I don't know if you have... Uh, did you grow up with a mom who sewed clothes? I kind of resented that my mom used to do homemade clothes for us. But as I've gotten older, I have uh, begun to appreciate the amount of skill that she had on her sewing machine. And I remember when uh, she got a hold of an old antique treadle sewing machine, the kind you actually had to pump your foot to, you know, keep the needle moving. And I think, wow, we have come a long way. And if you if you know someone who likewise you know, just thrives on the idea of creating things either through sewing or long-arm quilting or through embroidery. It's a very real pursuit. It's not just a hobby. It's not just a nice way to pass the time. You can really do some amazing things, and Sewing and Quilting Center is there in southern Utah to help you accomplish those things. They service what they sell. Even if you didn't buy your machine from them, they've got the technicians to keep your machines running. If you do buy a machine from them, whether it's an entry-level sewing machine or up to a very, you know, high-end long-arm quilter, they will teach you how to use that machine. They'll give you free lessons as to how to put it to use. And, of course, they have all the supplies, all the thread and everything else that you need, the fabric, to, to really make a go of it. That's com. When you do business with them, as you hand them your card or as you hand them the check or hand them the cash, let them know that you heard about it on this program. Well, do you find yourself uh, wincing every time you notice gas prices have taken another jump? I certainly catch myself doing this. And maybe it's because, you know, as I'm driving along, there's a couple of different truck stops just a few miles down the road that I, I go by and I'm just, oof, crap, it's, it's up another nickel. Oh, man, it's up 10 cents. And it's, uh, it's, it's definitely kind of a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I hate to say it, but I've had the conversation with my kids about, hey, I know it's summer, you're out of school, you have time on your hands, you want to hang out with your friends, but every trip that we take, you know, if you would just picture me taking, you know, a couple of $5 bills out of your wallet, even even the short trips add up very quickly. I'm not trying to tell them we can't have fun. I'm just saying the costs are going up, and I think most of us are feeling this. Well, Annie Holmquist has some excellent advice on finding hope as gas prices rise and society tanks. And it made me feel good to see that she says, I wince inwardly while sailing past the gas station on the way to work. She says, the price has gone up since I last drove by it yesterday. In fact, the price seems to go up about 10 cents a day lately. At that rate, by the end of summer, it will be... No, I can't think about that. Doing so will only bring panic. Now, she says, unfortunately... I doubt I'm the only one who fights a tendency to fear the future. I hear others bring up the state of the world in everyday conversations, wondering out loud what on earth we are going to do. Even if we put gas prices aside, everything else from maxed out credit card debt to random attacks on innocent people to empty shelves at the grocery store seems to signal that we're heading toward another Great Depression or maybe worse. By the way, she has links to each one of these things she's talking about, so you can see this is not just something she's imagining. Annie Holmquist says, hard times are ahead. And for those of us who have lived an ultra-comfortable existence for a long time, the thought that our lives could be entering a prolonged period of hardship and deprivation is very disconcerting. But embracing for this suffering, she says, I was suddenly reminded of what a good thing these hardships could be for me, for you, and for our entire country. She says, this realization came upon me while reading a short essay, The Great Liberal Death Wish, written in 1970 by British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge. 
Mugridge describes the cycle that pushes humanity into dire circumstances like the ones we seem to be entering. The efforts that men make to bring about their own happiness, their own ease of life, their own self-indulgence, will in due course produce the opposite, Mugridge wrote. When men forget God, becoming egotistical and adopting crazy notions, they turn into animals, he explained, and it is in that situation that Western man is increasingly finding himself. But she says, Mugridge also gave us a message of hope, pointing to those who have endured great suffering in the past as an example. We have been given the most extraordinary sign of the truth of things, which I continually find myself thinking about, he wrote. This is that the most perfect and beautiful expressions of man's spiritual aspirations come not from the liberal dream in any of its manifestations, but from people in the forced labor camps of the USSR. Now, Annie Holmquist says, you won't hear about good coming out of such suffering in the news. At least that's what Muggeridge said, because the media really don't want us to know about it. Perhaps it's because such suffering brings enlightenment, and that's not something the media wants you to have. Muggeridge continued, I was reading about it in a long essay by a Yugoslav writer, Mihalo Mihalajov, who spent some years in prison in Yugoslavia. He cites case after case of people who, like Solzhenitsyn, say that enlightenment came to them in the forced labor camps. They understood what freedom was when they had lost their freedom. They understood what the purpose of life was when they seemed to have no future. They say, moreover, that when it's a question of choosing whether to save your soul or your body, the man who chooses to save his soul gathers strength thereby to go on living, whereas the man who chooses to save his body at the expense of his soul loses both body and soul. In other words, fulfilling exactly what our Lord said, that he who hates his life in this world shall keep his life for all eternity, as those who love their lives in this world will assuredly lose them. Now that's where I see the light in our darkness. In sum, Annie Holmquist says, suffering knocks sense into people, giving them a thirst for freedom and a reason to live and fight for right. She says, we would certainly profit from getting a good dose of common sense infused back into our society. So instead of fearing the future and hardships it will likely bring, I am inspired to embrace them. Although the package, or I'm sorry, the wrapping or packaging may not be to our liking, the package contents might just contain the restoration we so desperately need. I think she's right. And I realize that is, that's a very difficult idea that she's asking people to consider. Because we all like to be comfortable. We all like to have security in knowing that there's always going to be food on the table and we're never going to have to wonder about whether or not we have electricity or clean water to drink or, you know, whether, you know, crime is going to be rampant or we're going to be persecuted for our beliefs. And I think it's safe to say most of us, the vast majority of us, have lived lives where these have never been a consideration. I can't think of a single time, even... I, I was going back through the other day. My mom gave me a letter that my dad had written back in 1978. This was probably about six months after he had had cancer surgery and radiation therapy, and he had just he'd very nearly died of cancer. And so he was pretty introspective about the illness that he had been through. Uh, he was he was basically unemployable for about the next five years. And if you recall, 1978 through about uh, 1983 was not a very easy time. There was, there was a serious recession. 
there was, uh, how did Jimmy Carter put it, malaise <laughs> that gripped the country. It was a hard time. And it was so interesting to, to see, you know, his point of view, to see my dad's uh, mindset as he was going through those difficult times. But it was very clear. It made him appreciate my mom and appreciate, you know, her love and support and fidelity to him. I was surprised, too, because this was a time, you know, when uh, my sisters and I, we were we were at that time entering our teen years and, you know, going through some of the growing pains that, that go along with uh, becoming teenagers. And, and, and I'll just say right up front, we did not handle everything well. We, I think we all rebelled to some degree. And yet I saw in that letter my dad expressing his love and his concern for us. And I recognized this was at a time when things got really, really tough for our family. Financially, you know, just as cohesiveness as a family unit, it was a super hard time. But I really had the curtain pulled back and saw how much my dad loved us. And that was hard to recognize as a teenager, especially as a teenager who was kind of uh, prone to uh, not making the best choices. And I'm convinced that had everything just gone well and, you know, everything was just going swimmingly, I don't know if my dad would have appreciated and, and been willing to express this. He, he was raised by a pretty stoic, you know, kind of family. And I don't know that this would have come easily to him, but it was, it was interesting how the hardships that he went through clarified his outlook on what really mattered most to him in life. And, and looking at this from the vantage point of, you know, now I'm a 56-year-old guy with kids and grandkids, and, you know, I've been through a few hard knocks of life of my own, suddenly I can appreciate where my dad was coming from so much more and realize, wow, I did not see it at the time. Now, to say he was grateful for those hardships, I don't know. I'm not going to put words in his mouth. He passed away 30-some years ago. But he had some real hardships. But it's very clear... He had clarity as far as what mattered most to him in life. And I'm happy to see his priorities were actually right on. I can't help but think there's a lesson in there for the rest of us, or at least for me. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you haven't taken the time to visit my website, it's thebrianhydeshow.com. And if you're one of those people who has, you know, had a taste of thinking for yourself and, and examining some of the forbidden, you know, boundaries or going beyond the boundaries of approved opinion, uh, I think you'll find the resources I provide for wrong thinkers are a great way to continue to feed your understanding of the world. I'm not going to tell you that everything you read there is absolutely true and has to be believed. I'm just going to say I don't share those resources unless I have grown to trust them because they they don't bog me down in a bunch of you know partisan chants and, and otherwise uh, turn out to be carrying water for somebody else's agenda. I like to find resources that help inspire independent thought and clarity of thought. And even if I disagree with them on some things, 
If I feel like they're dealing straight with me, if they're telling it to me as best they understand it, I'm more than happy to consider it simply because I know they're not just trying to, you know, buffalo me into, you know, a particular point of view. Try and get that through mainstream media sources. You won't. So I'm going to return for a moment here to the January 6th committee. Um, Julie Kelly is one of those resources that I have come to trust. She writes for American Greatness or amgreatness.com. And she has really done some remarkable research. She's one of those voices where I'm like, okay, if she has something to say, I want to hear what she has to say here. Now, that doesn't mean I automatically am going to believe everything. I'm just saying she has done her due diligence to the point where I feel like that's a source that I would be much more willing to listen to than, say, oh, I don't know, all of the combined mainstream networks out there. And her take is that the January 6th committee is pure political theater intended to crush the MAGA movement once and for all. She has an article here, January 6th for non-dummies. And she says, during another public hearing on Monday, the January 6th Select Committee featured a witness so irrelevant that his appearance should prompt even the most ardent defender of Nancy Pelosi's illegitimate inquisition to question the committee's real purpose. Former Fox News talking head Chris Steyerwalt, fired by the network shortly after the Capitol protest for calling the state of Arizona for Joe Biden early on election night, told his sob story to a presumably slim viewing audience. The washed-up commentator, however, is the last person with any insight into the events of January 6, 2021. Steyerwalt's performance, similar to the overwrought speechifying by committee members last Thursday, is another head fake designed to turn attention away from the truth about what happened that day and in the months leading up to the brief disturbance that resulted in the deaths of four Trump supporters. A well-oiled fog machine operated by the Department of Justice, Congressional Democrats, Never Trumpers, and the national news media is once again pumping lie after lie into the body politic in a last gasp attempt to destroy Trump and the powerful political movement he created. For nearly 18 months, American Greatness has covered this issue like no other outlet. So as the committee continues its dog and pony show on Capitol Hill this month with an eye toward producing a long list of legislative fixes, the Justice Department inexorably moves to criminally charge Donald Trump for his alleged involvement. And the media takes another extended nap on its purported fact-checking duties. So American Greatness here provides the definitive list of what people need to know about January 6, 2021 and related hype. She starts with the the truth of Congress and D.C. city officials, not Donald Trump, were responsible for protecting the Capitol. It is the primary duty of the Capitol Police Board, made up of the sergeant-at-arms for the Senate and House and the architect of the Capitol, to secure the sprawling complex. The federal police force, with a budget of more than half a billion dollars, employs at least 2,000 officers and houses numerous bureaus, including an intelligence unit. The Capitol building should have been well protected on January 6th during a controversial joint session of Congress with Vice President Michael Pence presiding. But Paul Irving, Nancy Pelosi's sergeant-at-arms at the time, and Michael Stinger, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's sergeant-at-arms, repeatedly denied requests by the Capitol Police Chief for extra help for days before the Capitol protest. As the chaos unfolded that afternoon, Irving and Stinger continued to delay numerous pleas to deploy the National Guard, 
Although more than a 1,000 guardsmen were stationed at the D.C. Armory on the morning of January 6th, they were not summoned to the Capitol complex until well after 5 p.m. Also, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser refused to activate a significant number of guardsmen on January 6th. Instead, Bowser authorized a few hundred guardsmen for traffic and pedestrian control. Metro officers arrived at the Capitol shortly after the joint session convened at 1 p.m. So the lack of security is something that needs to be understood as there was a deliberate decision made by those in Congress, particularly Pelosi and McConnell, that resulted in that lack of security. Secondly, one of the truths that has to be known here is that no police officers died on January 6th or as a result of the protest. Now that challenges one of the central tenets of the narrative. Most deadly insurrection, we're supposed to believe. It was deadly because police officers were killed. Nope. Julie Kelly says four supporters of Donald Trump, Ashley Babbitt, Roseanne Boyland, Kevin Greeson, and Benjamin Phillips died on January 6th. Babbitt, an unarmed veteran who posed no lethal threat, was shot and killed by Capitol Police Officer Michael Byrd around 2.45 near the Speaker's lobby. Boylan died around 4.30 p.m. outside the Lower West Terrace Tunnel where D.C. and Capitol Police were engaged in violent confrontations with protesters. Witnesses say Greeson and Phillips suffered fatal heart attacks after being hit with stun grenades, an explosive device used by police outside the building that afternoon. So despite claims from by everyone from Joe Biden to local news reporters, no police officer died on January 6th. For months, Capitol Police and the media lied about the death of Officer Brian Sicknick. The New York Times reported on January 8th, Sicknick had been bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher, an allegation that was included in the House Democrats' official impeachment memo. But the report was false. The Times retracted the account a month later. After a lengthy delay, D.C. coroner finally issued his finding, Sicknick died of natural causes, a stroke caused by two blood clots near his brain. Four police officers, by the way, did reportedly take their lives after January 6th. Two Capitol Police officers committed suicide in the days following the protest. Two D.C. officers killed themselves months later. But there's no proof that any of those suicides are tied to the events of the day. Another truth. No one carried firearms into the building. On January 7th, 2021, Pelosi described the previous day as an armed insurrection, a narrative that persisted for months. The public was led to believe gun-toting Trump supporters stormed the building with intent to harm or even kill lawmakers in an attempt to overthrow the government. Now, nearly 18 months later, no one has been charged with carrying a firearm into the building on January 6. Four men were charged with possessing or carrying a firearm on Capitol grounds, including one man who was arrested that evening after the protest ended. I believe at least one of those individuals was an off-duty police officer. But the only person who used a gun on January 6th was Lieutenant Michael Byrd, the cop who executed Ashley Babbitt at near point-blank range. He was exonerated by the Justice Department and Capitol Police officials. He remains on the job. Another truth not being covered by the January 6th committee. The FBI refuses to disclose information pertaining to the use of undercover agents and informants. Numerous court motions filed by January 6th defense attorneys refer to unknown federal agents present at the Capitol throughout the day. The New York Times reported last September the FBI embedded at least two informants in the Proud Boys months before the Capitol protest. 
Newsweek recently revealed that Jeffrey Rosen, the acting attorney general at the time, summoned hundreds of elite FBI agents, including the hostage rescue team, to Quantico the weekend before January 6th. Contrary to Rosen's public testimony, according to Newsweek, those agents were deployed to downtown D.C. the morning of January 6th. Some had shoot-to-kill authority if necessary. As the Whitmer kidnapping hoax demonstrated, the FBI is deeply involved in surveillance and setup of Americans the agency considers anti-government extremists. A Michigan jury in April acquitted two men charged in the hoax after defense attorneys successfully argued they were entrapped by the FBI. And the jury could not reach a verdict on two other defendants who now face a second trial. In conclusion, the January 6th committee is pure political theater intended to crush the MAGA movement once and for all. And like so many attempts before, the Russian collusion hoax, the first impeachment trial, the stolen 2020 election, the second impeachment trial, Democrats and media are successfully brainwashing millions of their cult-like disciples who allow themselves to be duped time and time again by the likes of Representative Adam Schiff. Julie Kelly says facts, as they say, do matter. And the aforementioned list is just a handful of indisputable truths related to January 6th, 2021, that the other side doesn't want the American people to see. So share it widely. I do have a link to her commentary. I would recommend, if you really have the time and the interest, go to the archives at amgreatness.com and check out what Julie Kelly has been writing about for the last year and a half. She's got a lot of great information that you will not hear through mainstream media sources. This is The Brian Hyde Show.